Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, and just let you know this will be broadcast number 19, week number 19, and quite possibly our number nine. I'm not sure there's any uh, significance to any of that, but that's where we are at, 19 weeks into a great study, and of course I've been reading Revelation over the last seven days, and Daniel, and consulting my commentaries, and this chapter Revelation 13, I think, thus far, is the most interesting and certainly the most intriguing to read and exegete. So for week 19, broadcast 19 and hour number 9, let's begin today's broadcast, if we may, in Revelation chapter 13, please. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. John is standing upon the sand of the sea. He was taken up to heaven, chapter 4, come up hither, and here he has been returned to earth. And I, John, stood upon the sand of the sea, could be the Mediterranean, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, a beast, a living creature, a supernatural being. Jesus had two natures, divine and human, the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. And here, the beast, this living creature, this supernatural being, is going to have two parts to him. He's going to be human and demonic. Satan manifest in the flesh. Having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. So when I first looked at this over a week ago, I was struck with the reality that this beast, incidentally is the Antichrist, would appear to have ten crowns. And yet from chapter 12, verse 3, and there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. So there is a difference. There is a discrepancy of three crowns. So I've been thinking about this a lot over the last week. On the one hand, we have the great red dragon, being Satan, of course, in heaven, having seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns, okay, and yet, when we get to chapter 13, verse 1, we read about this beast coming up out of the sea. And he has seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. And I don't know quite what to make of that. I've got some theories. Now, last week I mentioned the uh, difference between quality over quantity. And yet the devil has seven crowns, which I would imagine represent the seven continents of the world. He's called the God of this world. He's called the Prince of the Power of the Air. So, as of now, he is still very much busy, roaring about as a roaring lion, seeking to devour whom he will. And he enjoys seven crowns, which, of course, picture authority. You give a crown to a prince. You give a crown to a member of royalty, somebody with power, of course. And yet, when the beast comes up out of the sea, he has... Ten crowns. He's got three more than the devil has from chapter 12. 
and the commentaries that I've been consulting over the past week don't give a clear explanation as to why that would be. And all I can work out from that will be from verse 2, and I'll read it and then explain it to you. Revelation 13, 2, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as a feet of a bear, and his mouth as a mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. you got a leopard. you got a bear. You've got a lion. Now remember this, please, that John is looking into the future. Whereas Daniel, who also speaks about a leopard, a bear, and a lion, is also looking into the future. So Daniel is looking into the immediate future. He's looking at uh, Babylon. He's looking at Greece. He's looking at the Medo-Persia Empire. But when John writes the book of Revelation, those empires are long, are long gone, dead and buried, kaput, finished, finito. They are gone. So what is John looking at? Well, he's seeing a leopard. Could be America. He is seeing a bear. Could be Russia. He is seeing a lion. Could be Britain. Britain is pictured as a griffin. America is pictured as a leopard. Very diverse. And Russia, of course, is pictured as a bear. So it could just be that this beast, which comes up out of the sea, could be the Mediterranean area, like I say, is somehow affiliated with America, Russia, and Britain. Those three nations have dominated the world for many years. Look at World War II. The big three, Churchill, Roosevelt, Stalin. Look at Europe. As of now, the big three, Britain, Germany, and France. Look at uh, the permanent five members of the Security Council. Britain, America, Russia. On top of that, the language for the 21st century is English. And look at Russia, very much in the news at the moment. Very much reappearing on the world stage. Dominating the Syria conflict. And America, the last empire quite possibly until Antichrist arrives. So I think this, I think that this beast from 13.1 is part human and part demonic, or, let me put it this way, completely man and completely demonic, and opposites of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was very God and very man. And this beast, this living creature, this final embodiment of wickedness, son of Satan, if you will, is going to be very close to this leopard, this bear, and this lion. That gives you three crowns. Apart from that, I can't explain the discrepancy between the devil's seven crowns, chapter 12, 1, 2, and 3, compared to the Antichrist's ten crowns, 13, 1, 2, and 3. And also from chapter 12, Israel is mentioned from verse 1 as having a single crown upon her head many crowns in revelation i showed you some weeks ago about the 24 elders seated up in the third heaven very much enjoying gold crowns upon their heads but look at this again from 13 2 and the beast which i saw was like unto a leopard and his feet were as a feet of a bear and his mouth as a mouth of a lion and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. The seat of Peter. The throne of Peter. And I showed you many weeks ago from, uh, I think it was chapter 2, 
chapter 2, verse 13. I'm going to read it again. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and the holdest fast my name, and has not denied my faith, even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Satan's seat initially was in Babylon. Then it was moved to Sardis, modern-day Turkey. It will be finally removed to Rome, mystery Babylon. Satan's seat, where Satan dwelleth. Go back to chapter 13, please. The dragon, the devil, latter part of verse 2, gave him, the Antichrist, verse 1, his power and his seat and great authority. If you're not saved and you find yourself in the tribulation, you won't be able to decipher the difference between the Antichrist on the one hand and the two witnesses on the other hand. And that's how conniving he's going to be. Some people think that Judas Iscariot will be resurrected because he is referred to as the son of perdition in the Gospel of John. And Paul mentions the son of perdition in I think it's 2 Thessalonians concerning the Antichrist. I'm not sure if that is the case. I'm not sure if Judas Iscariot is able to fill the boots of the Antichrist. I'm not sure. What is quite possible concerning Judas and the Antichrist would be this, that the spirit, the devil, the unclean uh, entity that took over Judas will perhaps come upon the Antichrist. I read one commentary which put it like this. The Antichrist will arrive... He will start off good and end bad. Whereas Judas perhaps began good and ended bad or was always bad and remained bad. I'm not sure about that either. I think the Antichrist will start bad and end bad. And one writer put it like this, that the Antichrist will arrive on the scene. He will start off very upright, very decent. And at a time of the Lord's choosing, the devil will enter into him take him over, and he becomes this awful personification of evil. I mean, Nimrod was pretty bad. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was pretty bad. Hitler and Stalin were pretty bad. Castro was pretty bad. Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, were pretty bad. And yet when this guy turns up, he is going to be the worst of the worst. So I don't know whether or not I want to agree with those that hold to Judas being resurrected to be the Antichrist. I don't think he has the ability to pretty much deceive the whole world. I think what's more likely is that the spirit that came upon him, Luke 22, will come upon the Antichrist, referred to as the Syrian, back in the book of Daniel, the willful king, the son of perdition, like I say, and that spirit will somehow take over this individual Of course, he's also referred to as that wicked, Antichrist, and the beast. On top of that, he's also referred to as the prince that shall come, the king of Babylon. Let's keep reading on, please. Verse 3 from Revelation chapter 13. And I saw one of his heads as it was wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wanted after the beast. All the world, without exception. They're going to fall for this guy. They're going to think that he is something special. They're going to think he is the Messiah. The Jews will receive him. The Catholics will receive him. The Buddhists, the Muslims, the New Ages, the 
neocons, the Darwinists, are going to completely fall for his flattery. He's going to use his silver tongue to seduce you. He's going to be slick, smooth, and seductive. Women are going to fall in love with him, and men are going to want to be like him. And I saw one of his heads as it was wounded to death. Could be a literal head, or it could be in reference to a revived kingdom. And yet, looking at verse 12, if I get time today, it would appear that this will be in reference to his literal head. And I saw one of his heads as it was wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wandered after the beast. I think what is quite likely going to occur is a mock death. And this mock death, or this literal death, is going to imitate the Lord's death. People will take a look at the Antichrist on television, the internet, also probably in Jerusalem. And they will see this man literally die and then come alive. Very much a mockery of the Lord Jesus Christ's death, burial and resurrection. At the same time, it could be in reference to one of his old kingdoms being revived. In fact, from chapter 12, we looked at uh, Satan having uh, seven crowns. And those crowns, of course, would picture Nimrod, Pharaoh, the king of Assyria, the king of Babylon, Darius, Alexander the Great, pagan Rome, and finally, papal Rome. So I think what is quite likely going on here is a re-implementation, a rediscovery, a rebirth of the Roman Empire. Daniel speaks about a leopard, he speaks about a bear, he speaks about a leopard. Leopard, bear, lion. Lion, bear, leopard. So what I think we are going to see, and we will further examine this when we get to chapter 17, is a revival of this Babylonian Babel Nimrod government. The Antichrist will revive what Daniel saw back in the day. He will revive it. And the Antichrist, as I say, will be over the leopard, over the bear, and over the lion. And yet I can't get away from the fact that this deadly wound is also quite likely in reference to a literal wound. He will be put to death and be resurrected from the dead. And they will think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. This also goes back to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, how the Lord is going to send out strong delusion to completely blind those that refuse to believe the truth. Around this time, and I do appreciate that there was a lot of overlapping in Revelation, the two witnesses have been murdered. The 144,000 have been perhaps raptured. So the world has rejected the light from the two witnesses, the 144,000, and they have decided to throw their lot in with the Antichrist. Of course, once that happens, there's no way back. But let's keep reading on, please, from Revelation 13, verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? And who is able to make war with him? It's almost a rhetorical question. They are asking the question and yet not really expecting an answer. They worship the dragon, Satan, which gave power and authority unto the beast, Antichrist. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? He's invincible. They thought that about Napoleon. They thought that about Hitler. They thought that 
about all of the greats going back to Nimrod. And yet, every kingdom has come to an end. But the word here that really interests me from verse 4 is worshipped. Now that word means to kiss. Keep your hand in Revelation 13 and go back to the Old Testament. And I read this this morning and thought, yes, very interesting. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, scripture with scripture. And we read about the Son of God. Psalm chapter 2, look at verse 1 please. Why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and he perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Kiss the son, worship the son. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. Kiss the son, verse 12. Worship the son, first advent, comma, lest he be angry, tribulation, comma, and he perish from the way. Great white throne judgment, comma, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So keep that in mind. Kiss the sun, worship the sun. Revelation 13, 4. And they worship the dragon. They kiss the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him. Go to Matthew 26. We read about a holy kiss. And that holy kiss, uh, holy kiss, which uh, is found in the Pauline epistles, was used for the early church to express affection for one another. And there's nothing sordid about the holy kiss. And yet for Matthew 26, which I was also also reading this morning, I've been reading a lot over the last few days, I thought this is very interesting for Matthew 26. Uh, 26. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. And he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. 49. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hey, your master, and kissed him. We call that the kiss of death. So worship in the scriptures, not just to bow down and pay homage to an idol or a thing or the one true God. It also seems to picture a physical sense of doing something like kissing. You see, you see Catholics kissing statues. You see Catholics kissing their rosary beads. That's a picture of false worship. And here Judas, a good picture of the Antichrist, has kissed the Lord, the kiss of death. And once he did that, that was a sign to seize the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Revelation. Revelation, Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. People thought it was bad during World War II in Germany. People thought it was bad in Italy during World War II. People thought it was bad in Russia during the reign of Stalin and uh, Khrushchev and uh, Brezhnev and uh, Yeltsin, and Gorbachev, and uh, Putin. People thought it was bad in Cuba, under Fidel, and it probably was, and it's probably still bad under his current brother. In fact, here's a little thought for you. How many Americans got in boats and went through shark-infested waters to get to Cuba? How many people got in boats and went from Cuba to America 
via shark-infested waters. How many people went from West Germany into East Germany via the Berlin Wall? How many people went from East Germany to West Germany via the Berlin Wall, via Russian soldiers heavily armed with dogs? Would you be surprised if I were to tell you that? Zero went from the West to the East. Zero went from America to Cuba. And yet many went from Cuba to America, like thousands. And many went from the east of Germany, controlled by the communists, the bear, 13-2, and made it safely to the west. And that's why it's somewhat of a farce when people have the gall, the audacity to go on camera and proclaim communism, atheism, as being something worth dying for. All of these champagne socialists, and I've been listening to them over the last few days and weeks, have got no idea what they are talking about. On top of that, these champagne socialists have never once lived in Russia or Cuba. And if they were to even attempt to go and live in Cuba or Russia with their views, they'd be asked to leave very quickly. Revelation 13.4, And they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. Now he will take worship whichever way it comes. People say, I'm not a Satan worshiper. Yes, you are. Jesus would tell the Jews over in uh, John chapter 8 that they were children of the devil. You are an enemy of God until you are born again. The wrath of God abideth upon you. So my friends, you are a Satan worshiper until you get born again, until you kiss the sun. But until you kiss the sun, until you get born again, you are kissing the Antichrist. You are kissing the devil indirectly of course and as a result you are marked out for destruction and they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast and they worship the beast saying who is like unto the beast he is superman we've waited for millenniums to have peace on the earth we've waited for the kingdom of god to arrive but without the king of course and we think we finally got it we are clapping our hands we have been dancing in the streets Revelation chapter 11 concerning the murder of the two witnesses. We have been celebrating the murder of the two witnesses. We have been giving, uh, giving uh, gifts to one another. Christmas perhaps came early for those people. And finally, we've got peace on the earth. Finally, we've got what we wanted. We're going to live as we please. What do Crowley say? Do as thou wilt. Okay, fine. You can do as thou wilt, but there's going to be consequences. Who is like unto the beast? Who is like unto the Antichrist? Who is like unto the son of Satan? Again, Satan is a counterfeit of Christ. Satan is the anti-Messiah. And they will look at this man, the Jews and Gentiles, those that were never raptured, who go into the tribulation, and they will think that he is God's son manifest in the flesh. Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? It's almost like pastor worship. It's almost like worshipping one of their own, which is what people do. The Dalai Lama allows people to bow down and pay homage to him. The Pope of Rome allows people to bow down and pay homage to him. In fact, just some months ago, I was listening to a radio broadcast and it concerned the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of Westminster. Two very powerful men. And this interview ran for around 20 minutes. I couldn't get past the first four minutes. I had to switch it off. But what's very telling? 
was during the first few moments of the interview, the interviewer uh, said, who would like to go first? And the Archbishop of Canterbury said, I suggest the boss go first. What a thing to say. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the leader of the Church of England, from the religious perspective, of course the Queen is from the political perspective, wanted the Catholic Archbishop of Westminster, not yet a cardinal, I don't think, to go first. Because in his mind, the Catholic Archbishop of Westminster is the boss. And again, it's a picture of worshipping mankind, worshipping sinners who know no more than you do, who are just as lost as you were before you got saved. In fact, what did Christ say? There is no one that is good but God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But here's a little thought for some of you holiness people that don't believe that once you get saved, you can sin. To be good means to be morally perfect. So when it says over in John, uh, I think it's John, no, it's Matthew, Matthew 19, Jesus speaking. Why do you call me good? There isn't anyone that is good apart from God. What he is saying is this, that only God is morally perfect. Okay, morally perfect, sinless. So when people say that, they don't sin. What they are actually saying, in essence, is this. They are morally perfect. Now ask yourself this. If you've been saved for 10, 15, 20 years, hand in your heart with a straight face. Have you been morally perfect all of those years? And if you think you have, ask your wife to concur with that statement, to confirm that statement. Or ask your husband to confirm that statement. Or ask your children to confirm that statement. And they will say, no, you are far from perfect. They are, of course, deluding themselves. But I'm getting off script. Uh, 13.5. And it was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and 2 months. 42 months, three and a half years. We have to be at the end of the seven-year period of time referred to as a great tribulation. He's got a mouth speaking great things. And he blasphemes as he goes along. And I go back to my earlier thought or my earlier statement about Judas Iscariot. In some ways, Judas is an almost nondescript character. Peter is mentioned many times in the Gospels. John is mentioned many times in the Gospels. But Judas, although he's mentioned several times, to the best of my knowledge, only speaks once in the Gospels. And people say, well, you have to watch the quiet ones. That's true as well. I don't want to underestimate the spirit that controlled Judas Iscariot. I'm aware of that. Of course I am. And yet this individual is able to speak great things. A great orator, multilingual, no doubt. He will completely dazzle the Jews, the Muslims, and those in Christendom, all unsaved, of course. And power, authority was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. Christ came the first time for three and a half years and he dies on a cross. The Antichrist comes for three and a half years and perhaps dies a similar death like the Lord Jesus Christ and is able to deceive the whole world into thinking that he is the true Messiah of the world. Verse six, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven Absent from the body, present with the Lord. If you were to get saved today, or if you are saved today, and you were to die today, you go straight to heaven. There's no purgatory involved. And if Catholics could get that into their minds, A, it would give them peace. B, it would 
collapse the papal system, which they are a part of, and see it will give glory to God. If Protestants really understood that, absent from the body, present with the Lord, they would be able to rejoice in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet most are not interested in doing that. Most want to do their own thing. Most think they have to continue to do their own thing, to somehow earn favor with the Lord or salvation from the Lord. But this man is very audacious. This human filled with unclean spirits, a personification of wickedness, opens his mouth in blasphemy against God. Just imagine that. To blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. No doubt concerning the 24 elders, first of all, and those of us which are going to be raptured. Revelation chapter 4. And he will point up to heaven, no doubt, and attack the Lord attack the redeemed and he will say look at that man up there look at that woman up there look at that person over there did this did that look at that thief on the cross look at that man over there who killed stephen and the lord will say yes but they're covered by the blood and kept saved by the blood seven and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations He's going to make war with the saints, tribulation saints. And no mass will be able to spare such people. No holy communion will be able to save such people. No confirmation will be able to spare such people. And it was given unto him, Antichrist, to make war with the saints. Never mind Stalingrad. And never mind uh, El Alamein. Never mind Gulf War 1 and 2. Never mind Afghanistan. Never mind the current Syria conflict. This is going to be on a much greater scale. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. He's going to cut them down. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This will be a global event. In fact, I've read some accounts over the years which would limit the great tribulation to just the Middle East. No, no, no. This will be a global event like the flood back in the book of Genesis. All kindreds without exception, all tongues without exception, and nations without exception. That's partly pictured also from Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. Jews, devout men from every nation under the earth heard the apostles speaking in their own language. And from memory, I seem to recall that around 12 languages were mentioned from Acts 1 and 2. Acts 1 and 2 was a great thing, but here this is a bad thing. Such people are going to be martyred, they're going to be decapitated, with swords perhaps, guillotines perhaps, or far worse. 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. How do you get your name into the book of life? The Lamb's book of life? Simple. Believe. On the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. It's as simple as that. But what would they say back in Matthew 27. We shan't have this man to reign over us. Let his blood be on us and on our children. The name Jesus. The name Christ. Is still the most blasphemed name. In the world. If you put your television set on. Or tune into your favourite radio station. Or if you walk down the street. You hear people blaspheming. 
the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 again, and I will close. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Antichrist. They're going to kiss the devil. They're going to kiss the Antichrist. It's a reversal as to how things should be. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Tribulation people whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Your name doesn't get put into the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, which is what the Calvinists would have you believe. No, you would tell very clearly from uh, Romans 16 how there were people that were in Christ before Paul got in Christ. Now, your name is put in to the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, meaning this, that when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when you appropriate the atonement, then your name gets put into the Lamb's book of life. And once it goes in, it ain't coming out, as they say. Once you are in Christ, you are not coming out of Christ. Once you are saved, you are kept saved. You are sealed under the day of redemption. And I love preaching about eternal security. And one of my future messages will be, uh, I'll never sin again. A slightly tongue-in-cheek message. But I have to keep preaching this message because people, too many of them, believe that they can lose it. Or if you don't live it, you lose it. Or if you don't live like they live, you are going to lose it. In fact, I was watching a movie just last night about John Wesley. I've seen two in the last couple of days. Very interesting character. A saved man, I might add. And yet he unfortunately believed that you could lose your salvation. That if you didn't live it, you could lose it. Go back to what I said about moral perfection. And if you still think that you are this wonderful saved man who never sins, or this wonderful saved woman who never sins, ask your husband to confirm that. Ask your wife to confirm that. Ask your children to confirm that. And they will give you a very quick reality check. One last time, and I will close. 13.8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Antichrist, behind him the devil, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Children of the devil, enemies of God, given over to a reprobate mind, completely past the point of no return, twice dead, uh, roots which are withered, wandering stars, totally incapable of being saved. Did Christ die for them? Yes, he did. Did he give them a chance to be saved? Yes, he did. He sent two witnesses down. He resurrected two dead people to go to the earth to preach to them. He sent 144,000 Jewish men to preach to them. He sent the apostles the first time around to preach to the world. And yet the world said, no, thank you. I have my own religion. You have yours. That's just your opinion. I have my own truth. Okay, fine. When that happens, the law says, I will allow you to do your own thing. And when that happens, you are finished. You are through. So... Eight verses from Revelation chapter 13. And I knew this would be a difficult passage to really drill into. Like I said, it's very interesting and at the same time very intriguing. And I've just given you a general overview. And I think this will take probably two more Sundays to really exegete, to really drill in to what is going on here. And like I say, we are broadcast 19, study 19. We are over the halfway mark of Revelation yet. The more I read this, the less I understand it. I'm still... I'm grappling. I'm still trying to really understand what is going on here. But this is future, not past. This is from a futurist perspective, not a pre-trist or a historical perspective. What John has seen on the earth is still to occur. 
the best is yet to come. And yet, if you miss the rapture and you find yourself in this situation, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for all the tea in China. I couldn't even imagine what you are going to go through. In fact, I'll say this very quickly and close. My understanding is this. I may be wrong, but this is my understanding that if you hear the gospel in the church age, like now, and perpetually pass it up, perpetually reject it, once the rapture has occurred, you don't get a second chance. Because according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which I mentioned a little while ago, Almighty God will send out strong delusion to stop you getting saved because you are damned. Like from John 12, they have ears but can't hear, they have eyes but can't see, they can't comprehend the truth because the Lord has hardened their hearts. He's condemned them. Awful thought. So don't abuse the grace of God. And if you come into contact with a preacher today who gives you the gospel, take him up on the gospel. Listen to what he says to you because you may not have another chance. Like I say, if you miss the rapture and you find yourself in the tribulation, according to this, you could be part of two billion that are just wiped out. Just like that. Here today, gone tomorrow. And I will leave you there and pick it up next week from chapter 13, verse 9.